A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Marathon races today are popular throughout the world. Over 500 are held in various cities and locations each year, some of them with tens of thousands of participants. This run of just over 26 miles was also one of the events of the first modern Olympic Games of 1896, held in Greece. Its origin is the commemoration of a runner involved in the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC the topic of our first key battle between the ancient Greeks and the Persians. Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, The Battle of Marathon, Part 1 of 2. One morning in late summer, 490 BC, an army of about 9,000 Athenians with 1,000 allies from Plataea woke early to the news that the mighty Persian foe were heading their way. The navy of the mightiest empire in the world had landed, some 26 miles from Athens. After days of standoff, the fight was on. For the Greeks, this was a fight for survival. Little could they have known that much more than that was at stake. In the words of Hegel, quote, The interest of the whole world's history hung trembling in the balance, unquote. Or at least so goes one interpretation of the Battle of Marathon. In the previous introductory podcast, I described the outline of this series. Each part will be centred on one particular key battle that helped shape European politics, culture and identity, and the arguments around how much of a turning point each of those battles was. The natural place to start is the ancient Greeks, since they are the first Europeans to have handed down any significant amount of written material. And what a treasure they left! the philosophy of Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, the plays of Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides and Aristophanes, the epic poems of Homer, and the first historians, Thucydides and Herodotus. And it is Herodotus who is the main source for the topic of this podcast. He was born in Halicarnassus, which is modern-day Bodrum in Turkey, and lived in the 5th century BC, from about 484 to 425 BC. His masterpiece, and the only work he is known to have produced, is called Historia, in ancient Greek meaning something like inquiry, and a word that passed into Latin and acquired its modern meaning of history. Although some of his stories are fanciful, and much of it is subject to debate on its accuracy, it is without doubt an invaluable source of information for our knowledge of the ancient world. It describes not only historical events, but also gives a wealth of geographical and ethnographical information on the ancient world. Of particular interest here is the description of the origins and events of the Greco-Persian Wars. The Persians, although a great power, 
unfortunately left very little themselves in the way of written sources, so that what we know of them is all based on archaeology and what the Greeks wrote about them. Their name is a Latin pronunciation of the name Parsua, a West Iranian tribe whose territory was located north of the Persian Gulf and east of the Tigris River. The area of modern-day Iran was first unified in 625 BC under a group of people called the Medes, who came from northwest Iran. The term Medes, incidentally, was used interchangeably with the word Persians by the Greek writers. In 612 BC, they captured the capital of the Neo-Syrian Empire, the city of Nineveh, occupying a central position on the great highway between the Mediterranean Sea and the Indian Ocean. Near the modern-day city of Mosul, the city received wealth from many sources, so that at the time it was probably the largest city in the world. The first great leader of the Persians was Cyrus the Great, who overthrew the Medes and founded the so-called Achaemenian Persian Empire. Cyrus went on to conquer the Babylonian Empire, which was based around today's Iraq and the land west up to the Mediterranean coast and the Red Sea and then take control of parts of Central Asia around today's Afghanistan. From the Mediterranean Sea in the west to the Indus River in the east, Cyrus thus created the largest empire the world had yet seen, occupying the areas which were the cradle of civilization. At its peak, this empire is estimated to have had a population of 50 million people, nearly half of the total world's population of the time. As well as its size, its style was also different from its predecessors. It was less brutal than other empires of the time, such as the Assyrians. In fact, part of the success of the great empire lay in the Persians respecting the customs and religions of the lands they conquered, instead of always imposing their own ways. Their subject peoples enjoyed this degree of freedom in return for submitting to the absolute rule of the great king. The symbolic act required of conquered peoples to recognise their subordination was to make the Persians an offering of earth and water. By this action, it was understood that Persians were in charge and expected to be obeyed. Through relatively benign policies, Cyrus was able to reconcile his subjects to Persian rule and the longevity of his empire was one result. Part of the evidence for this is an object called the Cyrus Cylinder, which is kept at the British Museum in London. This clay cylinder is inscribed in Babylonian cuneiform writing, with an account by Cyrus of his conquest of Babylon in 539 BC. Cyrus tells us how he returned a number of images of gods to their proper temples. At the same time, he arranged for the restoration of these temples and organised the return to their homelands of a number of people who had been held in Babylonia. Some historians claim the cylinder represents a form of human rights charter. To my mind, any wise king would try to appease a newly conquered people, at least until they get used to the idea of belonging to his rule. Anyhow, Cyrus's success owed much to the material resources of his kingdom. It was rich in minerals, above all in iron, and in the high pastures of the valleys lay a great reserve of horses and cavalrymen and Cyrus was to make the most of these as he set the empire on course for Middle East domination over nearly two centuries. 
As the empire expanded and reached the Mediterranean, one of the regions it came into contact with was Greece. The Mediterranean, like the Near East, had seen sophisticated civilizations as early as the 3rd and 2nd millenniums BC, such as the Minoans in Crete and then the Mycenaeans of the Aegean Sea. The latter disappeared when Bronze Age civilization collapsed around 1000 BC, followed by a couple of centuries of Dark Ages, a time from which far fewer archaeological finds are made. When the Iron Age civilization was getting going in the 700 to 500 BCs, Greek civilization was spreading from the area of modern-day Greece to the coastlines all around the Mediterranean. The settlement started on the western coast of Asia Minor, an area called Ionia. The Greeks then spread further away in areas that are today southern France, Spain, Sicily, southern Italy, along the North African coast and all along the Black Sea. New colonies were founded by private entrepreneurs hoping to make their fortunes establishing new communities in foreign locations. The growth of trade routes, access to abundant resources, plus the development of more productive farming and the growth of manufacturing in ceramics and metal goods led to an enormous increase in the wealth of the Greeks. What the Greeks did not create was an empire in the sense that Persia was, or Rome was to be. Politically they were a large collection of separate city-states, often at war among themselves, occasionally forming temporary leagues and alliances, but essentially independent. And there was no precise definition of Greek nationality. If you felt Greek and spoke the Greek language, then Greek is what you were. The forms of government chosen by each city-state varied greatly, but can be put in one of three general categories oligarchy, tyranny and democracy. The first was used by the Spartans, whose particular version of oligarchy was subject to quite a sophisticated set of checks and balances. Two hereditary leaders, called kings, served as the religious heads and commanders of the army. They worked with a group of 28 elders to formulate proposals. An assembly of all three adult males then had to approve the proposals, but in reality very few were rejected. In addition, a board of five annually elected overseers, called ephors, counterbalanced the elders and kings. Their job was to ensure the supremacy of the law. While the Spartan people enjoyed a good degree of freedom, their conquered neighbours had far fewer rights in the system of two levels. The relatively lucky were required to serve in the army and pay taxes, and had no civil rights. The others, the helots, were enslaved and treated extremely harshly. It was the labour of these individuals, compelled to work as slave farmers, that allowed Spartan men the time to devote themselves to full-time training for warfare, so they could fight against external enemies, as well as put down helot rebellions. An alternative form of government was tyranny, when one individual was able to wrest power from the other aristocrats and assume personal control of the city. This was often unstable and required the great leader to elicit support among the common people. This was the situation in Athens until 510 BC, the year in which this city-state moved to the third form of political organisation, a democracy. 
Here, all political decisions were taken, at least in principle, by majority vote of the citizens. In order to prevent the people always voting along tribal or family lines, they were organised into ten new constituencies, which each provided an equal number of members to the city council. Even though these days the fact that the vote was not extended to the lower classes, women or its many slaves looks like a major shortcoming, this was still a major achievement for its time. The freedom of each Greek city-state to devise its own way of doing things encouraged healthy competition in art, culture and military matters, as well as political systems. However, the lack of unity and constant squabbling between the cities became a potential weakness when faced with the united empire of the Persians. Back in Persia, Cyrus died around December 530 BC and was succeeded by his son Cambyses. The new king continued his father's policy of expansion, successfully conquering Egypt, but died campaigning in Africa after only seven years of rule in 522. His brother, Bardia, inherited the throne, but was deposed after just a few months by a group of conspirators led by a courtier named Darius. The exact events are unclear. Darius claimed that the man overthrown had not been the true Bardia after all, but an imposter. There are no ways of confirming the truth, but it's difficult to believe, for me, that Darius did not usurp the throne from a legitimate king and subsequently felt the need to justify the regicide with such a story. Either way, he soon proved an effective leader. He divided the empire into twenty provinces, each under a regional governor called a satrap. An enhanced bureaucracy was aided by a network of newly built roads and the adoption of the Phoenician alphabet, an act representing the Persian openness to foreign influences. The Persian court and administration were very multicultural. Among those who worked with them were some Greeks who served as soldiers, statesmen and sailors under the king. The empire continued to expand to both the east and west. After successful campaigning in Central Asia, Darius turned his attention to Europe. In 546, he waged war on the Lydian Empire of Western Asia Minor, ruled by King Croesus. Having discovered that some of this empire included, on its western seaboard, a number of important city-states, whose inhabitants were not Lydians but Greeks, he sent them messengers, inviting them to rebel against the Lydian domination and become his allies. The Ionian Greeks declined at first, then changed their minds when it became apparent Darius had the upper hand, but, but by then it was too late. The king would take control by force. The Persian army had four main strengths. Firstly, the infantry were superbly disciplined and highly mobile. Secondly, they were skilled archers. The infantry would rush to within easy bowshot of the enemy and then rain down their arrows, each archer firing in quick succession. When this had done its work of wounding, killing, disrupting and demoralising the enemy, the Persians set the bows aside 
took up their shields and charged home with a spear, which was hurled at the enemy at close range, before finishing the enemy off with their swords. Thirdly, the cavalry were effective in charging the enemy, firing arrows or hurling javelins, before wheeling away for the next unit to take their turn. They were also used to outflank the enemy and attack from the sides or behind, and also mop up any enemy trying to flee or break loose. The fourth Persian strength was improved siege technology, in particular ramps to help get over the besieged city walls. The Ionian Greeks closed their gates, manned their walls and hoped to see off the Persian threat, but one by one each city was captured by the use of siege ramps and thus came under Persian control. But Darius's ambitions were not satisfied. His forces pushed further west into Europe, grabbing land as far as Macedonia. They even went north of the Danube River, where they attacked a people called the Scythians, who inhabited what is today Ukraine. Persian tactics were less successful there, however. The Scythians were nomadic people who had no cities to lay siege to, using similar tactics as those used by the Russians against Napoleon more than 2,000 years later, they frustrated the Persians by simply letting them march through the entire country as far as the Volga River without an engagement. Around 498, revolts arose in several cities on the Ionian coast, centred on the city of Miletus. The initial impetus led to a partially successful assault on Sardis, the regional Persian capital. But over the next six years, the rebellious city-states were brought back under Persian control in a number of different ways. Miletus was sacked, while cities that quickly surrendered were let off any punishment. The whole province was then put under the command of Mardonius, a Persian nobleman who had assisted Darius when he claimed the throne, and then later married the king's daughter. One highly significant incident during the revolt was the decision by the Greeks of Athens and Eritrea on witnessing the plight of their brethren to send troops to aid the Ionians. Their effect on the battlefield was minimal, they were easily defeated, but their actions enraged the Persian king. According to Herodotus, on hearing of the Athenian action, Darius, in quote, demanded his bow, but when he had taken hold of and placed in an arrow, he let it fly up to the sky, and as he held it into the lower air, he said, O Zeus, let it be allowed me to punish the Athenians. And when he had said that, he assigned to one of his servants on each occasion, when dinner was put forth for him, at three times to say, Master, remember the Athenians. Unquote. Perhaps Herodotus exaggerates the significance the great king gave to this small city-state on his distant frontier, but there must be some truth in it. Four years after the rebellion was subdued, Persian forces would be sent to further expand their territory, this time into the heart of Greece. The principal target of the initial punitive attacks would be Athens, having dared to challenge Persian power. Its fledgling democracy would have to face the full might of the empire. Please join me again next week 
when I relate what happened next in the second half of the story of the Battle of Marathon. If you like the podcast, please give it a review on iTunes or visit my website at www.historyeurope.net.